You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today's Bible reading comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Please be seated. Thanks, Dan. And just as a reminder, if you do not own a Bible, Redeemer would love for you to take one of these Black Pew Bibles home with you today as a gift from us. Today's reading can be found on page 775 in your Pew Bibles. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said would, he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. You can find it on page 868 of your Bible. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The Gospel of the Lord. 
Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent, where we join with Christians around the world and throughout history in giving our attention to our need for the mercy of God. We are needy people. That's what we say to ourselves and to each other during Lent. None of us are self-sufficient. Some of us do a pretty good job of the appearance of self-sufficiency, right? You're fooling everybody around you. But during Lent, we kind of drop the act and we say, you know what? It's not true. I actually am a needy person. I actually do need the mercy of God. And to that end, to help us along with this in the season of Lent, we are in the midst of a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Jonah, which in my opinion is like the greatest short story ever written. And it is contrary to popular belief, not a story about a fish or a whale, but actually a story about mercy. It's about the mercy of God. That's what the book of Jonah is about. And thus far, we've examined the first two chapters of the book of Jonah. We've talked about running from mercy. We've talked about pleading or begging for mercy. We've talked about experiencing mercy. And then today, we're going to look at chapter three. We're going to talk about laboring for mercy, laboring for mercy. And as we begin, let's, uh, let's say a prayer together. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to begin with application, which breaks all the rules of preaching. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to save application for the end. But we're going to break the rules. We're going to begin with application. Here it goes. Um, when Redeemer was first planted six and a half years ago, when we first got going, there were like 40 or 50 of us in a room together, talking, dreaming, praying about what it would mean for us to start a new church together. And there was something that I was saying to that group and that we were kind of all saying to each other uh, to remind ourselves of our our, our posture and our kind of philosophy of ministry, our ethos, if you will, about how we were going to go about planting this church. And here's one of the things that we said to each other six and a half years ago. We said, our strategy for evangelism and justice and mercy and cultural cultural renewal here in the city of Richmond is not a program. It's just you. It's just each other. Like our strategy is the people. That's what we said to each other. Now, that was a much smaller room then. Six and a half years later, things have changed. Like look around, there's more of us. We're at two services. The staff has grown. There's all these ministries and programs. Like things have complexified. And as things grow, then things change. And, uh, and just, I want to kind of update you on, on kind of our, like maybe, maybe a change, like our strategy Redeemer's strategy for evangelism and for justice and for mercy and for cultural renewal now, six and a half years later, since we've grown and changed, is not a program. (laughs) It's you. You remain the strategy. You remain like the beginning and the end of how we will go about seeking justice and mercy and renewal and evangelism here in the city. It's not a program, it's you. You are the strategy. And so what we're gonna learn about together in the story of Jonah this morning matters. And it matters for the evangelism of Richmond. It matters for, the, matters for justice in Richmond. It matters for the mercy of Richmond. It matters for all of our work here together. It matters for you because you are our strategy. Now, 
saying it that way might strike some of you, maybe it's totally normal, maybe you've been around churches before that have said those kind of things. Maybe others of you are hearing that kind of thing and you're thinking, that's not what I expected. I, kind of some, I wanted something a little more sophisticated, maybe something a little more complex, something a little more nuanced, like, come on, man, you're disappointing me here. Um, l- listen, if you can, this, this is the posture that God takes with his people all throughout the story of the Bible. God is continually saying to his people, I'm going to work through you. He does this in the very beginning with the first human beings and Adam and Eve, human beings made in his image, made to bear out his work in the world. He does this in the nation of Israel, forming a people for himself that is to be a conduit of his blessing and his work in the world. We see this all throughout the story of the Bible. We see it, of course, most clearly in the person of Jesus. It's this call, this invitation to participate, to co-labor with God in his work in the world. Now, I'll be the first one to admit, I do not like co-laboring. I like to do things myself. And I experience this most acutely almost every morning in the Murata house because the, the first hour of the day for me is like this sacred, special, kind of quiet, silent time. Uh, some of you will know our family. We have four young children and um, there are just no quiet moments in the Murata house unless you wake up before everybody else. So my alarm goes off early in the morning and I swing my feet out of bed, I shut off the alarm, and then I do these like ninja moves to get out of the room and down the stairs without stepping on one of the creaking like steps. Because if one of the steps creaks on my way downstairs, my youngest kids will pop out of their beds like popcorn and will be downstairs asking for things like before you know it. So Early morning, if you're wondering what I'm doing, I am doing these ninja moves to get down the stairs, to get to the coffee maker, to brew a pot of coffee, and then to start making breakfast. And I actually, I love cooking, and so I love cooking breakfast by myself. I love those still, quiet hours in the morning to drink coffee, maybe to read, maybe to listen to something, and then to cook breakfast on my own. Now, almost every morning, this hardly ever works. Like I'm like one for seven most weeks. Most mornings, one of my younger children, usually one of my boys, hears me creaking down the stairs, is out of bed down the stairs, and is usually saying words that to your ears are going to sound so adorable and to my ears are so frustrating. Dad, can I help cook breakfast? This is going to make cooking breakfast take so long. All I wanted was some moments of peace and quiet. And instead, I'm going to stand at the stove. We're going to try not to burn our fingers. And we're going to spend like an hour and a half making two pancakes, right? Like that's, that's how our mornings end up going. And uh, I'm just, guys, I'm just confessing. I'm not a very good dad, okay? Like a good father would say, oh yes, come on. Let's cook breakfast together, son. This will be great. And someday you'll tell stories about how you used to cook breakfast with your dad, no. My kids are going to tell stories about how they offered to cook breakfast and their dad was annoyed. Like that's, my kids are all going to therapy. Um, so I, I don't like co-laboring. I just want to do it myself. And so many of us, maybe because you had dads like me, think that that's how God works. That God actually doesn't want our participation. That like maybe God should just do stuff himself. But instead, God is actually a very different kind of father than me. He is always inviting our participation, wanting to do things with us, wanting to do things through us. And that's what we see in the story of Jonah. The word of, I mean, Jonah chapter one, verse one, like the word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise, go to that great city of Nineveh and call out against it. So let's just kind of recap what happens in Jonah. So God comes to Jonah, he calls him to go to Nineveh, this great missionary journey to go to this huge, evil, terrible pagan city and to preach there. Jonah doesn't want to do it. 
not very surprising. Jonah flees in the opposite direction. Nineveh is due east from where Jonah lives in what is modern-day Iraq. Jonah hops on a boat heading west to Tarshish, which to the best of our archaeological knowledge is in Spain. Jonah's running the wrong way. And God says, Jonah, I respect your boundaries. You do you. I'll go find somebody else to do the job. No, that's not what God says. God is, the text says God hurls a storm at Jonah. And you got to understand, this is God's mercy, not God's judgment. God is not punishing Jonah with a storm. God is saving Jonah with a storm. He's stopping him. You got to understand, in the story of the Bible, God's judgment is leaving you alone to let you go your own way. God's mercy is God chasing you down to find you and to catch you and to bring you home. So God chases Jonah. He throws a storm at him. It brings everything to a halt. Jonah and the other sailors on the boat are panicked. They don't know what to do. The boat's going to sink. They're all going to drown. And through a whole series of events, they figure out, oh, this is happening because Jonah is running from God. The sailors hurl Jonah, toss him over the side of the boat. And Jonah thinks that he is escaping both God and you know, God's mercy in this. He's kind of committed, committing suicide. And what does God do? Does God say, well, I tried. No, God sends a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Again, this is God's mercy, not God's judgment. God is saving him saying, I'm not even going to let you die. I'm going to bring you back. At the end of Jonah chapter two, after Jonah has come to his senses and prayed and called out to God, which by the way, is like the worst rock bottom moment I've ever heard of. Some of you think you have hit rock bottom. You have not. You have not been praying from inside a fish in the Mediterranean, right? Like that's, that's a different kind of rock bottom. So Jonah prays, he calls out to God, the fish spits him up on the beach. And then the word of God comes to Jonah again. And there's actually a little bit of humor in this part of the story because God doesn't even give Jonah like a breather. There's no like, hey, why don't you take a three-day retreat, take a little mini sabbatical, kind of rest a little bit, gather yourself, you know, detox. And then Jonah will try again. It's like, nope, spit up on the beach, Jonah is there covered in seaweed, gasping for breath. And then like the word of God comes to Jonah again. Some of you are parents and you know that experience of asking your child to do something, the child rebelling and refusing, maybe throwing a tantrum in a fit. And you go through this whole thing of timeouts and, you know, punishments and, you know, long talks. And then you know what it means to get back to that moment with your kid where you go, let's try again. This is God's let's try again moment with Jonah. So God says to Jonah, arise, same words, go to that great city of Nineveh, call out against it. This time Jonah listens. He goes to Nineveh. The text says Nineveh is this great city. It's a three days journey in breadth. That's kind of old fashioned language for saying it takes you three days to walk across Metro Nineveh. Um, And Jonah walks one day's journey in, which means he is well on his way towards center city. Does he hang on the outskirts? Does he just like shout over the wall? No, he goes into the city. He goes towards the center of the city. And that's where he preaches what seems to be like the worst sermon ever. I think it's only like eight-ish words or so where he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then mic drop, out. Like Jonah's not a good prophet, right? (laughs) Bare minimum level of obedience. And yet... Within Jonah's terrible, horrible, short little sermon, there is actually something wonderful for us if we have the ears to hear it and if we understand it. Because as I mentioned earlier, I think Jonah is the greatest short story ever written. And whoever wrote this story, whether it's Jonah himself or somebody else, they are a literary genius. And there's so much good stuff happening 
even in that short little phrase, that little sentence that Jonah said. And so what we're going to do is we are going to look just at a couple words and we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us to labor for the mercy of others? And we're going to learn from Jonah's experience in Nineveh. And we're gonna, if you're the kind of person that takes notes, I'm going to give you some categories here. First, we're going to look at the protest that Jonah makes. Then we're going to look at the petition that Jonah makes. Okay, so if you want to take notes, here are your categories, protest and petition. All right, let's start with protest. Okay, there's this word that is used here in the text to describe Jonah, where it says he went a day's journey into Nineveh and he called out. Now, it's important for the author that that word is used. It's this Hebrew word kara, call out, because it's what God has been commanding Jonah to do all along. We see it in the very beginning of the book of Jonah. Arise, go to the city of Nineveh, call out against it. We see it again after Jonah has been spit up on the beach and the word of God comes to him again and says, arise, go to Nineveh, call out. And here Jonah goes to the city and he calls out. So there's some obedience happening here. What kind of obedience is it? It's the call to protest. It's the call to go to a place and to name that which is evil, corrupt, broken, wicked, unjust in that place. It's the call to tell the truth. It's the call call to tell the hard truth, the ugly truth, the distasteful truth, the truth nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to say. It's the call to protest. And listen, this is nothing new to the story of the Bible. Think about all the other protest moments throughout the story of scripture. Let's just name a few of them. You think about Moses going to Egypt and protesting against Pharaoh and against the systemic evil of Egypt that has enslaved the Israelites. Think about Nathan, the prophet Nathan, going to King David after he has unjustly and wickedly raped Bathsheba and caused Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed. Nathan, the prophet, goes and speaks truth to power to King David himself, who is supposed to be a man after God's own heart, and Nathan goes to protest. You are wrong. What you're doing is evil. Think about Elijah calling out Queen Jezebel. Think about Jeremiah calling out against Jerusalem, God's own people, for their injustice. Think about Jesus calling out sin. Think about Jesus calling out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Remember that moment where there's a woman who is caught in the act of adultery and these Pharisees and religious leaders drag her to the town square and they're getting ready to stone her and they sort of use the moment to trap Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, you know, what should we do here with this woman? And they're trying to figure out, you know, they're trying to like corner him theologically. And Jesus, in a very subversive and masterful way, calls out their hypocrisy. And he does so very subtly when he says, okay, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, right? And one by one, they all kind of go away. Because why? He has called out their hypocrisy. He has protested against them. Think about the moment with Jesus and the woman at the well, where she uh, is going there to draw water. Jesus is already sitting there. And he says to her as they talk, hey, go, go, go call your husband. And she kind of little shamefaced, has to kind of say, I don't actually have a husband. He says, well, that's kind of true. That's half true. Actually, you've had five husbands, and the person you're living with now isn't your husband. What is Jesus doing? He's being gentle, but he is protesting. He is calling out sin. Some people have this view of Jesus as a soft, soothing, therapeutic kind of spiritual guru. Listen, soft, soothing, therapeutic spiritual gurus don't get crucified. Jesus was executed because he wouldn't stop protesting the evils of his time. He would not shut up about the evil and the injustice of his age. And so the first way to labor for mercy is to call out its need, is to name the need for mercy, to name that which is sinful and corrupt and oppressive and evil and wicked. And listen, the history of the the church 
has such a good track record of doing this well in various places and times. Think about the first three centuries of church history, where the church is filled with the economically disadvantaged, with the poor, with women, with slaves. Why? Because the church was the people of mercy who protested their mistreatment. If you were a disadvantaged person in the first century, you know where you're safe? You are safe in the church because they are the ones who are going to protest on your behalf. So many of the saints, the great saints of church history are the ones who had the courage to protest sin in their own time. They were the ones who were willing to speak out. You might think about uh, what happened in the 1970s in Uganda, where there's this horrible dictator named Idi Amin, uh, who hardly anybody remembers anymore, but he ruled Uganda with such violent atrocity that it was called by many at the time a state of blood. And there was an Anglican bishop named Janai Luam who protested against this this evil dictator, calling out against all unlawful arrests, calling out against murders, calling out against the violence that was taking over his country. And Bishop Luam actually ended up being executed, like assassinated by uh, the dictator's henchmen. And in the first service, when I told that story, this wonderful woman actually came up to me after the service and said, I was there. I was there. I was in Uganda in the 70s when all of that went down. Hardly anybody remembers it anymore. It's the courage to protest, to call that which is evil for what it is, evil. Now, I just want you to know, I see so many of you doing this so well, doing, doing this kind of stuff really well already. And you might not realize that you're doing this, but you are. Think about it. I see you doing this in your work, in your places of business, where you're thinking hard and well about the ethics of how you practice your business. I see you doing it in education. You're thinking very carefully about what is just and right and fair and good, not only for your students, but for the families of your students and for your teachers. I see those of you who are bosses thinking about your employees and think about how to treat them in good and right and fair and just ways. I see you doing this in medicine, thinking about how to practice medicine ethically. I see you thinking this way about our city. As so many of you are rightly learning the city of Richmond, you're getting to know the history of this place. And in getting to know the history, you're getting to know some of the evils of this place. You're getting to know the wickedness of Richmond. You're not blind to it. You're not glossing over it. You're actually beginning to name it. And this is good and important work. I see you doing this in your small groups. I see you actually beginning to, takes courage, but you're starting to do it very gently and with a lot of grace and kindness, begin to like name things in each other's lives that you're aware of, that need, that need to change. And I see some of you receiving this so well. I see it in the accountability that is happening between men and men and women and women in this congregation. Some of you are meeting at like 6 a.m. in the morning to share a cup of coffee together and to say to each other, hey, some things need to change about your life, about my life. I see it in some of you students both in high school and in college, who are learning to encourage each other not to compromise on sin and actually to begin to call things out, to protest, even at an individual level, to one another. And this is so important. You know, our culture actually knows something of this kind of calling out. You might think about movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter or Occupy Wall Street and the 99% or the picketing that happens outside of abortion clinics or the March for Life. These are moments of protest, of calling out sex, uh, injustices of sex and race and economy. But Listen, even as I, and I know naming those is super controversial, right? I get it. But even as I name some of those things, just listen. All of us probably could recognize together that protest alone is not enough to create a culture and society of mercy, is it? Protest is necessary, but it's not enough alone. In fact, when protest 
takes up all the air in the room. It becomes the only thing that we are doing. Then protest actually ends up developing this kind of honor-shame culture that is profoundly unmerciful in its nature, right? So if all we do is protest, then we end up creating the very thing that we're trying to avoid, which is an unjust, unmerciful society. Protest alone cannot deliver the mercy that it says it wants. Listen, mercy is not the absence of evil and oppression, but the the presence of what the Bible calls shalom, goodness, wholeness, harmony, peace. And protest alone cannot deliver it. We must protest sin. There's a great call and tradition of both the prophets and the Old and New Testaments and also the church and the people of God and the saints throughout history of protesting sin. And we must join in that protest, but it can't be the only thing we do. We also have to petition. Now, this is where we have to lean into the literary wordplay that is happening here in the story of Jonah. The author, whoever he or she is, is a literary genius because that phrase, call out, doesn't just mean protest. It also means to petition or to beg or to plead. And it's actually used that way in the story of Jonah. So not only is call out used in a go and protest, it's also used in a plead or beg or petition for mercy sense. Think about these moments in the story of Jonah. Uh, In chapter one, verse five, then the mariners were afraid and each called out to his own God. Verse six, the captain came down and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper, arise, call out to your God. And then in verse 14 of chapter one, the mariners called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And then in chapter two, Jonah called out to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And then in verse six of chapter three that we just read, that Audrey just read this morning a few minutes ago, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Same word. What you got to understand is that this too has a long tradition throughout the story of the Bible of calling out for mercy, not only for yourself, but also on behalf of others. Think about Abraham calling out for mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about Joseph calling out from his prison in Egypt. Think about Ruth and Naomi calling out in their grief after their husbands have died. Think about King David calling out from the cave when King Saul is hunting him. Think about Jeremiah calling out from his prison. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego calling out before they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Think about prophet Daniel calling out from the den of lions. Think about Jesus calling out for mercy on his disciples when they are so wayward and disobedient and they just don't understand what he's getting at. Think about Jesus most fully calling out from the cross, pleading and begging for mercy on the very people who are putting him to death. The history of the church also has a rich tradition of doing this well too, calling out for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness, and for pity. The great saints of church history are not only those who protest, but also those who petition. Think about someone like Mother Teresa, whose whole vocation was bound up in petitioning for God's mercy for those who are dying in Calcutta. You know, friends, I see you doing this too. I see you calling out for mercy on the sick. When somebody gets sick here in this church, this is like a great place to get sick, which is a weird thing to say. But if, if it's gonna happen to you, 
it might as well happen here because here there are such dear men and women who are going to come around you and they're going to pray for you. And not only are they going to come and visit you in the hospital or visit you in your home and pray for you, they're also going to commit to praying for you, to calling out on your behalf for God's mercy and for your healing. This is a great place to be unemployed because there are people who are going to come around you and they're not only going to work to try to help you find a job, they're going to pray for you. They're going to call out for mercy on your behalf. This is a great place for those who are financially struggling because there are people here that are not only going to lend you money, but they are going to call out for God's mercy on you, for God's provision to you. I know that I've see, I see so many of you do this with some of the marriages that are crumbling. Like the, like the pandemic just puts such strain on so many marriages. And some of those marriages are cracking under the weight of the isolation that happened during that period. And I'm watching others of you come around those families and to plead and to beg and to cry out for mercy on those dear people. I see you doing it for yourself in the midst of depression or in physical pain or some of you who have experienced betrayal. You're calling out not to protest, but to petition and beg and plead for God's intervention. Now listen, even as we talk about these two categories of protest and petition, there's something that we just have to, if we're gonna be emotionally intelligent people and be self-aware, which we should be, we've got to recognize together, none of us do these two things equally. All of us have a leaning, a predisposition towards one or the other. And here we have to address one of the primary concerns that comes up in a room like this. Whenever we talk about things like calling out sin or calling out for mercy, because there's some of you who are hearing me talk about these things. You're thinking, oh, this is, this is exactly what I was afraid of was to be in a, in a church where they, they talk about the importance of calling out sin and other people. Oh my goodness. Do you know how horribly that prophetic act has been abused? Do you know how many of us in this room bear wounds, bear traumas from having that kind of posture misused, like abused in the church? Oh yeah. And I have those scars too. So here's what we're not talking about. We're not talking about going full throttle on just one of these or the other, even though that would be what comes most naturally to most of us. What we're talking about is the intersection of these two. We've got to recognize there's two different kinds of people in the room. There's people who want, who feel very comfortable protesting sin without, without petitioning for mercy, right? Love to call out that which is wrong. Love to post about it. Love to talk about it. Love to complain about it. And you almost see yourself as some sort of like modern day prophet whose job it is to like name wrong things in other people. Can I just tell you something as your pastor? You, that's not who you are. <laughs> like your vocation is not to be the person who names all the wrong things in other people's lives or in culture or in society. No, we always do these things with mercy. In the very same way, there's some of us who, who hear that and they go, yes, amen, that's right, I'm right there with you. Uh, yeah, but there is a place in which we must name that which is evil. You can't lean all the way to the other side either where you're the kind of person who loves talking, like you have this affinity for words like grace, mercy, forgiveness, um, therapy, like justice, like all these, like you, you love the softer ways of caring for and ministering to people, but you've never had the courage to actually call out and protest and name that which is evil and wrong. So there's a problem here. And the problem is both of these kinds of people, listen if you can, can't learn from Jonah. 
The first kind of person, the one who likes to protest, can't learn from Jonah because in a way that you might not even realize, you're a lot like Jonah and you don't even see the problem. You actually think that it's part of your Christian vocation to kind of be all the worst parts of Jonah, that your job is to go to the city and say what's wrong with it. No, in the same way. And so you can't learn from Jonah because you're too much like him. In the same way, the person, the other kind of person who loves like the pleading for mercy, but never protests, you think you're nothing like Jonah. And so you're not gonna learn anything from him either. So actually both kinds of people can't learn from Jonah, which is a problem because that's all of us. So I guess we just close in prayer. <laughs> the end series ends here. We're not gonna do part five. We all learn nothing from Jonah. Let's move on, <laughs> right? No, what's our way out? How do we actually go learning from the story of Jonah? Well, listen, the answer is found. And again, literary genius, whoever wrote this, there is a double wordplay happening here with a different word. And it is like the key that unlocks the, uh, the entire book of Jonah. Listen, if you can, what is Jonah's sermon? He goes and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Overthrown. What does it mean to be overthrown? Well, at the risk of sounding absurdly obvious, it means to be thrown over, right? Who has been thrown over in this story? Jonah, right? Both literally, physically, and, and spiritually. Jonah is the one who was thrown over the side of the boat, right? Hurled over the side of the boat. Jonah is also the one who has been overthrown in his own heart, mind, and soul because that word overthrow, it not only, it's very fascinating, it not only in the Hebrew, it's this word, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna butcher it. You pronounce it, Hapak or Hapak. This word that means that we translate overthrow, it has two meanings. It can mean tossed over. It can also mean turned around, turned around. Who's been turned around? Jonah's been turned around. One of the great miracles of the story of Jonah. In fact, there's two great miracles in the story of Jonah and they have nothing to do with a fish, right? So the first great miracle of the story of Jonah is that Jonah turned around. Like God actually got Jonah to go to Nineveh. That alone is miraculous. The second great miracle of the story of Jonah is that Nineveh turned around. God got both to turn around. And what's so fascinating about the way God accomplishes his purposes in the story and in the world is that God overthrew Jonah and God overthrew Nineveh and he didn't do it with judgment. He did it with mercy. God overthrew both Jonah and Nineveh with his mercy. This, this Hebrew word, hapak, it can be translated as we said, tossed over, turned over, thrown over. It can also be translated turned around. And we see this through the story of the Bible. Like this is not the first time that biblical authors have used this word this way. I just wanna show you, like I'm not making this up. First Samuel chapter 10, uh, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul to be the first king of Israel. And he tells Saul, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will be overthrown or transformed, turned into a different person. This is the word hapak, same word. You will be hapaked into a different person. God hapaked Saul's heart. You'll be overthrown into a different person. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a very famous verse that like people print on coffee mugs where it says, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will overthrow your mourning into gladness. I will hapak your mourning into gladness. 
We see this again all throughout the story of the Bible. This Hebrew word hapak, it means this wholesale, complete, sudden change, either for the worse, destruction, or for the better, conversion. The Ninevites obviously understand the threat of hapak, of overthrowing. They obviously feared destruction. But when God says that he will hapak them, that he will overthrow them, there's the possibility within that word that it means something positive, not something negative, that God may change them for the good. God overthrew Jonah. God overthrew Nineveh. And he overthrew both of them with his mercy. And here it is. If you are willing to accept it, God will overthrow you with his mercy. You see, scripture says it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness that leads to us turning around. It's your kindness, it's your mercy that ends up overthrowing us. Now, how does God end up doing that? How does God's mercy overthrow us? Because we're not Jonah and we're not Nineveh. So how do, are we just playing with words? What does this mean for us? No. Here's how God does this with you. God comes to you and he comes to you in Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the one who, who in one sense calls out. Jesus is very offensive. Jesus calls out to you. He protests your sin. He names that which is evil, that which is corrupt, that which is selfish, that which is wicked in you and, and, and in me. We encounter Jesus as the one who protests against us, who calls us out. But then also the Jesus who petitions for mercy for us. And Christ is the one who not only protests against us and then petitions for us, but who actually experiences the overthrow on our behalf. I think one of the best ways to understand the cross of Jesus it is, it is Christ voluntarily enduring, being overthrown, that destruction, so that in our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls, we might be overthrown by his mercy on our behalf so that we might be changed, so we might turn around, so that we, like Nineveh, would repent. And therefore, Christ becomes the only one who can both call you out and offer mercy at the very same time. Christ can deliver both the judgment and the forgiveness. Listen, Jonah was not ready to call out the overthrow of Nineveh until he himself had been called out and he himself been overthrown. And the same is true for us. If you are going to co-labor with Jesus for mercy in the city of Richmond, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in your family, amongst your friends, then you yourself must first be called out, protested, by Jesus himself, and also overthrown by the mercy and the love and the grace of Jesus for you. Only then are you ready to co-labor for mercy with Christ. And here's how this works. We become people who become keenly aware of our own sin. We know the pain of having our own sin called out, and it hurts. It's horribly offensive and uncomfortable. And so when the time comes to then be a person of protest and to call out the sin of others in our city and our world, we never do so from a place of self-righteous judgment. Never. And unfortunately, the church is all too known for that, right? But we never do that, or we should never do that. Rather, we call out, we protest from a place of shared guilt as people who have already been called out by the Lord. We become like one addict saying to another, we have to change. We become like one thief saying to another, we've got to give this stuff back. 
To call out sin against sin as a follower of Jesus in the way of Jesus is never to stand in judgment, but to share in guilt. One of the things that we talk about here at Redeemer is that we are a church that practices gospel formation for missional presence. Gospel formation for missional presence. And we do that through what we call the seven essential practices of the ancient church. And if you have one of those liturgies, you can flip it open, you can find those listed on the kind of inside cover there. But, but one of those practices is we call the practice of vocation, the practice of laboring and renewed vocations for the common good. Listen, your vocation, your work, whatever it is, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or whether you're in marketing or medicine or education or business, like whatever you do, your vocation is bound up in other people's need for mercy. Other people's need for mercy is what drives your vocation. And the primary way that other people are gonna experience God's mercy for them is through your work. That is, your work becomes the primary conduit or vehicle by which the world will experience the mercy of God. And so we must become people who begin to embody the mercy of God, both in our protest and our petition, co-laboring with Christ. Let me conclude. Uh, I told you about how I'm a lousy dad who doesn't like to cook breakfast with his kids. I am learning to, slowly but surely. This morning... I got, it's a true story. I got a text from my wife, Rachel, and the text was a food pick. It was a plate of food, breakfast, sitting on the table because one of my kids had gotten up early and had made her breakfast without being asked. And I thought to myself, as I saw that, I'm done parenting. That's great. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, it's the first time, it's for probably first and last time that'll ever happen. But I thought to myself, Oh, oh, this is what it looks like for a child to begin to take up the business of the parent, to begin to labor and even co-labor with the parent and begin to embody the work of the parent on their behalf. You know, we said that our strategy for laboring for the mercy uh, of our neighbors here in the city of Richmond is not a program, but it's you, and we mean it. And so let's pray together that we would become the conduits of God's mercy here in our place in our time. Heavenly Father, Would you please work in us and would you work through us by the power of your gospel and enable us to become co-laborers of your mercy in our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, here in our city. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.